Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay from 2021 with the inspirational teacher Tara Brock, who's known for her work around mindfulness, meditation, emotional healing and spiritual awakening. In this episode, we discuss her amazing book, Trusting the Gold, Learning to Nurture Your Inner Light, which I really recommend checking out after you've listened to this episode. Hope you enjoy. You're a real inspiration and I love your books. So thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm so happy you invited me on. This is fun, Emma. So I wanted to firstly ask you, because I think with some teachers in this space, like yourself, who impact so many people, sometimes people assume that you have come into the world like fully formed with with some sort of almost perfection. Like I, I feel like you have so much nailed in your life and so much wisdom, but it's not the case, is it? Like you have been through a lot from your books. We understand your journey. And would it be safe to say that you almost had to heal yourself in order to help others heal? Yes, (laughs) it's truth. Um, You know, it's really any, if the, if I touch people, it's because I'm working on the same, same stuff. I've been just at it. And um, I don't mean working like slaving away, but really facing all the same feelings of imperfectness and failure and, you know, needing to uh, pay attention to where the hurts are. So, yeah. And it was so interesting reading in Radical Acceptance, your story, when you lived in the ashram for so many years. And it really intrigued me how even though I'm on my spiritual journey, probably at the very beginning of it, that actually there's so much gut instinct and so much of your own intuition comes into that because you could end up following the wrong thing, even if it's sold to you as being the right thing for you. Yeah. And, and it's almost like there's no regrets because the truth is we are geared to learn and wake up from anything that happens. We can pick the wrong partner, but we're going to learn about ourselves and our world through that, through where things are hard. So one of the things I found if I look back at my life is the places that were everything was really falling apart were the times that, you know, like my heart broke open in some way. I learned something new, some creativity from the universe could flow through. So I don't regret that I got into a uh, spiritual community that wasn't a fit and that I had to find that out. That was just part of it. Do you feel like we all go through that in terms of trying on different groups? Because a lot of what I've got from your book personally is this sort of idea of not attaching yourself too much to a group and actually always coming back to myself. And that's been a real relief because obviously we're social animals and we want to be validated and we want people to like us. But that sort of non-attachment, which I know doesn't mean being detached, has really helped. Yeah. Ultimately, everything's an experiment. (laughs) You know, everything we're doing is an experiment. And there's this deep underlying question of, does this serve to wake up my heart? Will this, you know, open my mind and bring more clarity? Will this bring more love in this life? And sometimes we go a certain direction and we realize, okay, this is as far as I can go in this direction. Ultimately, we have to keep coming back and asking 
ourselves really what works. Nobody can tell us. There's like right at the end of the Buddha's life, he had a phrase, it's ehi pasiko. And it really is saying, you have to find out for yourself. You just have to find out for yourself. What's so interesting about your work as well is I feel like there'll be so many people who discovered you years ago and they almost feel like you, that, that you were sort of speaking directly to them. And I feel like that's what people get from your work is it's quite intimate and personal, even though you don't know the thousands of people that are probably watching your YouTube, but we're there feeling like you're talking to us. And what's so interesting about your new book, Trusting the Gold, it feels very very accessible like this is a book that anyone could pick up and read have you noticed that in your work that it might have gone from quite a niche place to this almost like quite mainstream if it's mainstream it's because so many of us are going through the same thing i mean i mm -hmm. and you know it i'm i'm just like here we are and our world is pretty chaotic and crazy and uncertain and we get all these messages of how we should be. And there's so many of us. And this is, I just keep being amazed how pervasive this is. So many of us think that we're failing, that we're flawed in some way. And we spend so much time fixated on, on you know, what's off. And I remember when I wrote Radical Acceptance, because that this was my the revelation to me that we live in this trance of unworthiness. And I remember I was traveling around on with doing on a book tour and going to one place and they had a big poster with my picture on it. And it said, something is wrong with me. That was the caption underneath. And I, I walk into this building and there's this poster with me saying something's wrong with me, you know, but that is the background uh, kind of message that a lot of us have going on that, um, we're failing and that we need to present ourselves to the world in order to get approval and love. And we have to be different than we are. So I think that people, I think it's, if there's a mainstreaming, this is a roundabout response is because so many of us can relate to that. And if we're not down on ourselves, we're judging other people. And it's just, it's just such a deep habit in us to, not trust. And so part of the reason I felt so drawn to, you know, the theme of trusting the gold is because if ever there's a time in our history when, you know, we can see the violence that comes from mistrust, you know, the, how, how people are divided, how they're going against each other, how when we're not connected and trusting, we don't take care of the earth and we don't care, take care of each other. It just felt like this is the theme to go at. I mean, just to pause for a moment and imagine what your life would be like if you really trusted your goodness. Like in any moment, you just said, you know, for whatever my habits are and conditioning, this heart is a good heart. It cares. It loves, you know, that I want it. I, I want to know truth. I'm honest. You know, if we really trusted that, then we would look at each other and see past the conditioning and trust their goal too, you know, and yeah. it would start healing. The way that you tackle these topics as well is so brilliantly done because actually whilst reading it, I felt like there was a courage in your words, for example, talking about 
white privilege, which is something I've been thinking a lot about, we all have, and how there is a shame spiral that can happen when we talk about these things. And it's so inherently shameful to almost look at yourself in the mirror and feel like there's a part to play. We all have a part to play. And for you to have really gone there, I was so grateful as the reader because I don't think a lot of people have gone there. I think we we might still be in that phase of kind of turning our backs to something that makes us feel bad when actually we need to go all in and feel that discomfort. Oh, I love the way you're putting it. I feel like that is the call right now is that we really turn towards the discomfort and be, that we be willing to be uncomfortable. It's like nothing that I've ever experienced that's wonderful in this life um, has it doesn't come without a willingness to be present with what is. It always does. And with white privilege, whoa, you know, it's like, here we are. Most everybody I know lives in caste systems, you know, that in some way it's racial caste systems, class caste systems. And we are usually not awake to how that separates us from each other. We're not awake to how the inferior and superior, and this is true in any relationship. If you think of any relationship you're in, often there's a power differential, you know? Um, Somebody has more power. And if we don't get what that does to us, how it, in the deepest way, even the person that is supposedly the superior position, they suffer because it's separation. We can't really be at home with ourselves. And in, especially I see in the United States, it's like for white people who are some holding desperately to their superior position, it, it's this huge insecurity now. And so people are fighting more desperately than ever to hold on to that position by you know voting, fight, fighting voter rights and the whole thing. Um, it comes from insecurity and to not see for ourselves, you know, the conditioning. And then as you're saying, part of the challenge is not to go into a shame spiral because it was so, it's been so easy for me to start seeing the horror of um, violence against black indigenous people of color and to realize that my conditioning has been to be participating and to not then go, oh, I'm a bad person. So because as soon as I do that, and one of the stories I share, and you probably read it, Emma, is that being in a mixed, uh, a diverse group, and we were really examining this stuff. And I found that the more I felt ashamed of myself for my whiteness, the less I was able to really see others for who they were or feel any intimacy in the group. And I ended up at one point feeling so separate. That's when I finally had to like face it and say, okay, what's really going on? And I realized how I was taking personally the conditioning of white people in the society. And it, it really helped me to see that because then I could go ahead and feel the horror of what white people have done, but not then translate it to mean I'm bad. It just means I have to hold this. Like I have to really open my heart to feel this. And then I can feel grief and care, but not shame. And that was really an important learning. 
this conversation is so needed because I think people might have a stereotypical view overall. You never know people who haven't read a lot of spiritual books that it could be all about being happy all the time and not digging deep and just everything's great. And what your work is, is so much deeper than that. And actually there's a paradox to the conversation. And actually there's a quote in Radical Acceptance that I wanted to bring up because I know you've answered this a lot of times, but I think we should talk about it a little bit. The sort of paradox of accepting in order to make change, because sometimes there is this sort of assumption that if you accept the world as it is, you're sort of saying it's fine. Um, and it's the Carl Rogers quote, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. And I thought, could we talk about that a little bit, just how those two things work together? It's, it's a fantastic question, actually, because I think the biggest misunderstanding of acceptance is that it's a kind of passivity. And it means you know, how are we going to fight for our earth and, and save, you know, life on earth? How are we, when, when animals are treated with such cruelty, billions and billions each year are, you know, tormented and killed to satisfy human diet preferences. How are we going to, are we going to accept that? Or are we going to do something when we see the, the violations against, uh, people of color. So it's this, it's over and over again, do we accept? And acceptance does not mean passivity. Actually, acceptance is a an amazingly courageous thing because what we're doing is we're accepting the reality that exists. We're saying, I acknowledge the horribleness. I acknowledge the realness of the violence. I acknowledge the realness of the pain. I'm allowing my body and my mind to feel that. And it's only until we accept the reality that we actually wake up the kind of compassion that can act from intelligence. Because otherwise, we're acting from hatred or reactivity. And, and the most intelligent social activism doesn't come from hatred. It doesn't come from anger. It comes from care. So. What I've learned to do, and this has been a, um, this took me some time because, you know, when I f first uh, got involved, you know, with the spiritual path, I was also very active as a, as a social activist. I was a very left-wing, passionate person. And um, what I had to learn over the years is when I get activated. <laughs> so let's say currently right now in the United States with all the the ways that right-wingers are trying to uh, deny people the right to vote, you know, and that really activates me because I see democracy or at least whatever tendrils of democracy we have, you know, getting completely shut down. I get activated and, and it focuses on certain people. I see certain people that are, you know, have the power to create these policies. So I find myself, you know, angry and feeling huge aversion. And what I'll do is I'll pause and I'll feel all the anger because the process of waking up always means you have to start right where you are. You know, you have to start and feel honestly what's here. So anger. So I accept the anger that's going on inside me. And then if I open to it, I find underneath it, there's fear. Like I'm afraid if in this case, uh, the voter rights are 
pressed and, you know, that really it's going to mean a very deep dive towards fundamentalism, you know, real harm. So I'll open to that fear. And then if I really open to that fear, I'll find grieving underneath that it's just this real sorrow for what that means to human lives, to the earth, you know, and then if I really open to that, there's a pure caring. And then if I want to speak out or write or do anything to be active socially, it's coming from caring. So the process of acceptance is that you start right where you are, you accept the realities, you keep opening to what's there. But if you're courageously present, you'll come down to a caring that then lets you respond, not react. And that's the point. What I've noticed looking at myself in that way, I can now see it in other people. So if someone is acting on the surface, very, very angry, you can have a little bit more of a layered approach to that as well. You can actually understand that person's probably quite scared and it makes us all more understanding. But I I wanted to ask you actually, when did you first come up with the RAIN technique? Because that was that a long time ago. And how, how did that come about? Okay, so the story of RAIN is that Michelle McDonald, who's a um, Buddhist teacher uh, from States, uh, when I, I probably is about 22 or three years ago, came up with the acronym. I didn't come up with the acronym. Um, it, had, it had some different meanings than what I teach as RAIN. So I tried it out and I liked it, but I had some problems with it. So, and, and I would share it with students and they'd have, and the problem was that the end of RAIN uh, was non-identification the way it was originally taught. It missed compassion. It didn't have the compassion piece. Nurturing is how, how I use RAIN. So the RAIN acronym goes recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. And if you get stuck in a tangle and you take even a few minutes to walk through those four steps and you end with nurture, which is offering some care, it could be words or touch or just the feeling of care to what's there. There's a shift. It's biochemical, it's psychological, it's spiritual. There's a shift from those four steps that can help to release us from tangles of difficult emotions. And what happens when that shift happens is then we're not so identified. So the non-identification is kind of the fruit of RAIN, um, but we need the compassion. So that was kind of the um, genesis. I would say that it probably, let's see, um, it would probably be about 15 years ago that I started teaching it in in its current form. And um, it's really become quite popular around the world, actually. Even people with different languages still use RAIN, which is always interesting to me, because the four steps are actually just a natural weave of mindfulness and compassion. This is not like a, a new invention. This is just a systematic stepwise use of mindfulness and compassion to free us from emotional pain. So it's become very popular. And here's a cool thing. In the last, over the years when I teach workshops, um, 
because it works well, I'll have people do RAIN in partners or in small groups together. And I developed a protocol for it. And now there are people all over the globe doing RAIN partners. So they do the practice with a partner, which is so powerful. You know, we, we're used to meditating by ourselves, but when we do it with each other, not just sit with each other, but in this kind of interactive relational meditation, it creates a container where each person goes deeper into their experience, but also feels, wow, other people feel this too, you know, feels that sense of connection. And um, so that's a real sweet development. And for those that are interested, you'll be I'll have more and more on that on my website. But right now you can find the protocol for for RAIN partners on my website. I love that. You're so right. I don't really think of meditation as something I could do with someone else. But of course, of course, I can either do it in groups or alone. But actually this idea of having a partner, that's kind of even better in many ways. In Radical Acceptance as well, you have a list of, it's almost like a checklist of the trance of unworthiness, like all of the things, you know, what we think about our bodies, feeling guilty about being jealous, like all of these feelings. Does it all come down to the fact that if we all loved ourselves deeply and we were compassionate people all the time, basically no one would make any money from us? (laughs) (laughs) And I was just thinking, like, it's really made me aware that it's easy to target us as just as consumers, I suppose, when we feel bad about ourselves. It's true. We become manipulatable, you know, by this weight loss you know, potion, you know, technique or whatever are, um, in, you know, whether it's a self-help industry or it's therapists or whatever, but we all want to feel better about ourselves. And what's sad, and I, I wrote a book called True Refuge, and we take false refuges. We use, and they're not bad, but we use substitutes to try to feel good about ourselves. And each of us do it you know, um, ways that we either, you know, are completely workaholic to try to feel like we're, you know, a better person. We, we get hooked on achieving. We get hooked on other people's approval. We all have our list, you know, including the addictions that try to numb the bad feelings of something's wrong with me. You know? mm-hmm. So, Yes, um, there's a huge amount that swirls around the trance of unworthiness. It's really big. And the saddest thing is that when we feel not okay about ourselves, it's very difficult to truly feel close or intimate with others. Because deep down, even if others appear to like us, something in us can't trust that we're lovable. That's a very... um, that's profound if we if we really pay attention to sense, you know, can I let in love? And and many people find that cognitively they know other people love them, but it's not a felt sense. So that's an important part of the, the path is to examine that and see if we can start to really let in that people care about us. Yes. It's really interesting the that sort of relationship with something else. We've always had to, we, well, a lot of us have been brought up to think that we must feel a certain way because of someone else or because of something else. And something I've really got from your book as well is this idea of being happy for no reason and unpicking 
are you happy because you're having a good day because something good has happened to you or are you just having a good day because you decide it's a good day? It's a fantastic phrase, happy for no reason. I love it because you're, you're right. We hitch our happiness to certain things. It's like I, I can be, I'm happy when I get, you know, the raise or I'm happy when the person that I'm really attracted to is attracted back or whatever it is, or I lose the 10 pounds. And it's a rare moment that there's just presence and that there's a happiness that just comes from beingness, from just being and witnessing this life as it is. And that's real freedom. But in order to have that, we have to kind of um, know how to come back into the moment. And most of us are time travelers. We're spending most of our time, you know, planning the future, are worrying about the past. And so it's not so common that we that we're here. It's like there's that saying, you know, that our true sickness is homesickness. That we don't know so much how to be at home in our bodies, in our hearts, and with ourselves. Yeah. And on that topic of time, I just wanted to pick up on something that I loved in the book as well, where you talk about when you first had your son and how you felt like, because I'm, I don't have kids, but I, I know that that is a very intense time where you're very busy and you've got a lot going on, that you felt you had no time and you would meditate for like three minutes on the edge of your bed. And for anyone listening who does feel like they don't have a lot of time, I mean, could you just talk about the power of even a few minutes? Because it's really inspired me to think of time in a different way. And Yeah, well, that was, I had lived in an ashram. So I was practicing for hours a day, you know, doing a very intense spiritual practice. And I remember I moved out of the ashram and then I had my son. So not only did I not have the support of an ashram community to gather with, I had a newborn baby that needed a lot and I was exhausted. And so I made this, I mean, I, for a few months, I was very spotty in my, in my meditation practice and I could feel it. I, it's like I had put money in the bank, like I carried me for a while, but then I started really sensing how not meditating each day, it allowed my mood. I, I didn't have as much of a check, you know, it would, I would, I would just fall into certain moods and reactivities. So I committed myself to sitting every day, no matter what, but I gave myself this back door, which was, it doesn't matter how long. And Emma, it's been amazing because I have meditated every day you know, for decades and decades and decades. But especially when I had a very young son, there were times I was, I just would go through the day and it was at the very end. And by the way, it doesn't matter how long also extends to you can be in any position. So <laughs> sometimes I'd be sitting on the edge of my bed and I would just say, you know, okay, a few breaths, you know, maybe breathe for a minute or two and, you know, blessings to the world. And I collapse and it counted, <laughs> you know, it counted as that day. But the trick is that life loves rhythms, you know, nature loves rhythms. And when we have a rhythm of coming home to ourselves each day, it's like Romy says, do you make regular visits to yourself? There's an intimacy that grows and what we practice gets stronger and we get more and more able 
in not too long to really sense that we're relaxing back into our bodies and back into our hearts. And there's more of a quality of balance and clarity that we treasure. So I really invite people into the um, everyday, no matter what approach. <laughs> yes. And I've, I love all of your books, but I have to say, Trusting the Gold came at a really good time because it's full of these really handy prompts. It's very accessible, like I said, but just these sort of phrases and words and sentences that we can say to ourselves, even about the belonging and letting in how we really feel. And it's so practical. So thank you so much for it, because it's like handbag size as well. So I could just carry it around with me. Um, but my last question really was just about, have you felt more people come to your work over the last year? Because I feel like there's been a bit of a shift even more so into needing this work. Well, it's kind of a cool question. It circles right back to the beginning, which is, yeah, when people and all of us, when we're suffering and when things are uncertain, we actually um, reach for more resources inwardly and outwardly. It's like we that's when we know we really we need to be more resilient. We need to have a way we need support in getting through it. And so, yeah, the the outreach to meditation has been growing steadily over a few decades, and there was a major spike over the last year. And many people have, have written to me and said, you know, rain saved my life, or, you know, being able to meditate saved my life. I have more confidence or trust in myself and, you know, in my relationships now. And the reason I love that title is... For me, it's almost like a mantra now. It's like when I get thrown off, I mean, even if I pause in these moments Emma, and say, just trust the gold, um, something softens and opens because deep down, I know that in you, in me, and each person listening, there is an awareness and a love that's more fundamental than any of the conditioning we have. And if I can remember that, then everything gets more spontaneous and open and free. So, um, so yeah, lots more going on when tough times happen. Mm -hmm. It's like coming back to our true nature, like you say, like away from everything else. You can feel it when you feel like you're being yourself and it's really lovely. And I think your books really bring that out of people um, because it's so easy to get lost and to get wrapped up in lots of other external things. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. This is, I'm going to treasure this conversation for a long time. It's amazing talking to you in person. I obviously listen to you all the time. So I feel like I know your voice so well, but thank you so much. Well, I love the quality of your questions and your spirit. I mean, your gold shines through, Emma. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. 